Hey, Mountain. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to you at all of our campus, wherever you might be joining us or online. Glad you're with us. My name is Ben. Hey, let me get started here. At all the campuses, raise your hand if you feel like it's a distinct possibility that a person sitting next to or near you is sort of strange. Go ahead and just let me see your hand. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's kind of, it's, I just want to see some of the delayed reaction. Well, I wasn't going to waste my hand until she did. We're, we're kicking off a series today called Strange Christmas. You probably are, are aware of that. And we're not going to really talk about uh, some of the strange people that you know or are seated near you or even the strange things that people do at Christmas, like your cousin Eddie who shows up with his RV and parks it outside your house. We're calling it Strange Christmas because over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some things that every single one of us really wants. Things that we long for, but which are scarce, it seems, and that we really, really struggle to, to find and to get a hold of in our lives. And we're going to talk about how we can have those things that we really, really want and long for, how you can experience them, these things that we actually ache for in, in a wonderfully strange way. That's where we're going. The graphic for this series, uh, you maybe noticed, kind of reminds a lot of us of the wildly popular science fiction Netflix show uh, called Stranger Things. And I got to be honest with you, I told you last week, I've actually not seen the show. It doesn't matter if you've seen it or not. And I, ca I can't endorse it or, or encourage it even. It looks a little creepy to me, actually. But... Um, but I love the name, Stranger Things. And actually, I've done a little reading on the show, and, and, and I, I, like the, I like one of the premises of the show. The concept of the show is interesting. The, the government is conducting these kind of secret paranormal experiments in this little town in Indiana in the 1980s. And they accidentally create this portal, this opening to an alternate dimension of reality. And it's called the Upside Down. And everything's different there. And through that portal, these influences come... And these forces show up, uh, most of them dark and dangerous, which, which influence the real world. And, you know, people are like, oh, oh cool, what a concept and all that. And I want to say, do you realize what God has done at Christmas? I mean, think about it. I don't think we're shocked enough by how strange and amazing and remarkable Christmas is and what we're celebrating. And it's not science fiction. God has stepped into this planet in real space and time, broke in in history and has done this incredible, strange thing by sending his son through a little portal, if you will, in Bethlehem, and Jesus shows up coming among us in person. You talk about strange, the immortal, invisible, eternal creator, sustainer of the universe shows up in diapers to an unwed mother in the backwater town in the middle of Galilee, in the middle of Judea. Talk about strange. And this Jesus then would grow the Son of God to connect us to another dimension, if you will. Another reality, completely different than the way we tend to think and operate on this, on this earth. And it's starting to have an influence through Him and it's still spreading in the real world. And Jesus didn't call it the upside down. Instead, He said, you know what, I come, I'm preaching the kingdom of God. Where God's ways and God's thinking and God's will kind of reigns supreme and then people come online with that and join into this kingdom and it still grows and spreads until we can answer the prayer that he taught us to pray which has these words thy kingdom come on 
earth just as it is in heaven. That the upside down way that things appear on this life will be turned right side up because of this portal that's been opened from a supernatural other place where Jesus shows up. And you know what that means? It means that all those longings, those things that we really hope for, that we can't seem to get our arms wrapped around in life, we can have them. You know, a lot of people talk about the Bible being this dusty, old, relevant, you know, irrelevant book that doesn't connect with, you know, the times very well. But Christmas is a reminder that everything we really, really want, the Bible points us to that. So if I ask you, you know, what are you waiting for? What do you really want? What are you, what are you looking for in life? You know, you might say, well, I'm waiting to retire. I'm waiting for my shoulder to rehab. We're trying to have a baby or hoping for a raise, waiting for Christmas. I don't know, there's a lot of things we could say that we're waiting for and we're looking for. But you know what? Right beneath all those next steps and things we're waiting for is like deeper real stuff. Beneath the surface, there's like real stuff that we're waiting for, isn't there? Like deep things. And the Christmas story is all about that, about a world and people like us who are waiting for stuff that we long for and you go through the Christmas story and all these people are waiting you got Simeon the old man in the temple he's waiting you got Anna the prophetess she's in the temple she's waiting you got Joseph he's got this girlfriend and then she gets pregnant and now he's waiting to see what that's going to be like and then Mary she's waiting and then uh, you got everybody waiting and, and the, the Bible has a name for the thing we're really waiting for you know what the name is it's the word Messiah Messiah is a word that means the thing that we're waiting for it's an old Hebrew word from the Old Testament. So in Hebrew, it's Mashiach, means Messiah, Mashiach. And, and it just simply means anointed one. It's, it's, the, uh, it's like in the Old Testament, you see a prophet or a priest or a king that God said, boy, I'm sending this one to sort of fulfill a special need right now. And they were the anointed one at any given time, but they were waiting for the one that was going to come. And you get to the New Testament and you get the word uh, Christos. In Greek, it's Christ and Messiah are the same word, and they are the same thing, and here it is. It's the one, capital O, and the thing, capital T, that we are all waiting for and long for the most in life. And so that's why I encourage you in the season of Advent, as we call it a season of waiting. What we mean by that is let yourself imagine what we're all really waiting for. Let yourself go there. Imagine a world where there's really no more loneliness, where there's no more divorce, where there's no more cancer. Let yourself imagine a world where there's not just wicked and evil stuff going on, where there's no more separation or sorrow or ugly behavior between people. There's no anxiety or depression. Let yourself imagine a world without violence and fear and insecurity. Let yourself just go there. And you know what you're feeling in that moment? You're, you're longing for Messiah. It has a name, Messiah. And that's the thing that everyone has want, wants. And what the amazing non-science fiction but very real truth of Christmas is that Messiah has come. Messiah has come. Zechariah, Anna holding that baby up. They're like, whoa, it's here. This is it. God's doing it. Jesus lives his life in a certain way. He shows up on a scene. And Andrew, First uh, uh, John 1, 41, Andrew sees Jesus. He's like, holy cow. He runs and grabs his brother Simon and told him, he says, we found the Messiah. It's in Jesus. It's here. Remember Jesus met a woman that one day over in Samaria by a well. 
they were gathering water there. But she's there not just because she's thirsty. She's thirsty for so much more than water. Her life is kind of empty. Her, her life had run dry with men and rejection and shame and heartbreak. And she's on her fourth or fifth guy now. It's not just her jar that's empty. Her life is empty. Her heart is empty. She's looking for more. She's waiting on something to come together for her life to turn around. She's like a lot of us. In John 4, 25 and 26, the woman tries to protect herself like we sometimes do and kind of make it a theoretical conversation. She just says, oh, I know when the Messiah, Christ, comes, he'll explain everything and we'll all understand. And Jesus says, oh, I can do one better for you. He says to her in verse 26, he says, I, the one speaking to you right now, I'm standing right in front of you, I am he. I am the Messiah. I'm what you're looking for. I'm, I'm the living water, he offers her that you're really looking for. Now think of so many friends like my friend John who's had an adventurous, full, wonderful life by most people's standards, but he's lonely and he doesn't have any meaning and he's wondering where it's all going. And other people I know right now whose life circumstances are super, super discouraging and they're just like so up to here with what's going on in their life and other things, there's some harsh things happening in my friend's life. You know, we're all, and in the midst of that, we're all longing for Messiah let me try to name for you some of those things we long for and ache for. What we're longing for is love in the midst of loneliness and in a cruel, harsh, mean world. Is it possible? We're longing for peace in the middle of a storm when everything's crazy and upset and you have a lot to be stressed out about. We're, looking, we're longing for joy, like a sense of just like really feeling and experiencing joy, even though your circumstances may really stink. And we're longing for hope in a seemingly hopeless situation. And so that's, that's what we long for. These strange things, if you open your heart over the next few weeks, I think you're going to see that not only are the things that we, we are really looking and waiting and longing for, but they're the things that can come to us, but they don't look the way I think we expect them to. They're strange. It's a strange Christmas. Let's jump in today and let's talk about love. Let's talk about love. Um, what makes this love so different and strange is that it comes from God, right? First John 4, uh, 7 and 8 uh, simply says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. Talking about this love. For love, what? Comes from God. That's what makes it different. That's what makes it strange and different than, than what this dimension, what this world is going to offer you. Anyone who loves is a child of God and, who, and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is is love. And then that love kind of gets pumped into Jesus, who he is, and he demonstrates it and lives it, and he calls us to it. And it's different. It's weird. It's bizarre. It's strange. I mean, think about some of the things that this kind of love really does. So, for example, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. How Jesus, the teaching, says, all right, if you're willing to try some of this strange love, listen to this. Love your enemies, huh? How about that? Are you kidding me? Love your enemies? Isn't an enemy someone, by definition, someone who's you hate? Do good to those who hate you. What? That's from another world. Okay, someone curses you. Bless them back. Pray for those who hurt you. What? If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt. Also, you see how strange this is? And Jesus lived that way. And everywhere he went, it was like, 
People are just like, well, that's strange. Don't touch the lepers. He touched the lepers, healed them. Don't touch the dead girl. He touches the dead girl and raises her life. Don't touch the woman with the issue of blood. Touches her, you know, and, and heals her. Ignore those mean old tax collectors. They're sinners. And he stops and talks right there and says, hey, Zacchaeus, let's go to lunch. He's just so strange. And then it just was for everybody, indiscriminate and free, the way he gave this strange love. And it wasn't just something that you could see by the way he lived. Probably the most clear expression of this love that we're talking about is not just in the way Jesus lived, but in how he died. Think about it. You can look at a passage like John chapter 10, verse 11 and 18. It says, Jesus says these words, I am, I'm the good shepherd. So we're all sheep. He says, I'm a good shepherd. And here's what a good shepherd does. He lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. It's not like I'm going to steal my life or they beat me up and kill me and I didn't want to. No, no, no. I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and take it up again, which he proved. This command I received from my father. If someone laid down their life for you, took a bullet for you, like stepped in front of a, you know, a, a car and pushed you out of the way, you, you'd, you'd feel so grateful and overwhelmed that they would do that at their own cost, wouldn't you? And Jesus says, this is the kind of strange love that I have for you. The shepherd in those days had a little enclosure out in the desert to put the sheep in at night because there were, you know, wolves and cougars that wanted to get at those sheep. And so the shepherd would bring all the sheep in there and then lay across the gate thinking, you know, anything that's going to get to those sheep is going to have to go by me. Jesus says, I'm like that. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Strange. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is strange, real love. Not that we loved God, no, no. But that He would love us and send His Son as a what? Sacrifice. To take away our sins. When we start talking about sacrifice now, we're talking about something that's hard and different, right? Love, I think a lot of times is thought of as sort of just mushy and soft. Like, okay, so they remade that movie. What's that movie they remade? The Star is Born? They keep remaking it every few years. And uh, what's the lady's name? Gaga or whatever she's in it now? Back in the old day, I'm an old school guy. Who, who sang the lead song, Evergreen? Barbara Streisand, come on, the, the faithful crooner, yes. Love, soft as an easy chair. Remember that one? Love, was it fresh as the morning air? Yeah, it's just so like, oh, love. Soft as an easy chair, fresh as the morning air, blah, 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 about roses and stuff. It's like, oh, that's great. You want to see that? That's not, that's not strange love, though. That's just like, buy me a puppy for Christmas, and I'll show you all that love. Okay. But when you start talking about love that's hard, well, that's special. There was a minister in Chautauqua, New York, who had no arms. He was born with nothing from here down. No arms. And he told about the time that he learned to put on his own clothes 
without any arms. He said his mother, his mother always used to dress him. She fed him and dressed him and fed him and dressed him every single day. He got to be a pretty big boy. And one day she just put his clothes on the middle of the floor. She said, dress yourself. He said, I can't dress myself. I don't have any. She says, if you want to get dressed, you're going to have to dress yourself. And she left the room. He said, I was so mad. I kicked and I screamed and I hollered. I said, get in here and help me. You don't know what it's like. You don't love me anymore. Get in here and help me do this. You have no idea. You can help a little. And he screamed and he kicked and he finally realized after a while of that that if he was going to get any clothes on at all, he would have to put them on himself. After hours of struggle, he finally had some clothes on. And he said it was not until much later that I realized my mother was in the next room crying. What is that? What she just did there? It's love. Strange love. And I think of Jesus as the father put the cross on his back that one day and said, you're going to have to carry this one on your own. And Jesus hanging there in that moment of abandonment and dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father turns his face away, crying in the next room. As the song says, how deep is the father's love for us? Vast, beyond all measure. That he should give his only son To make a wretch like you and me his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. The Messiah bring many sons and daughters to glory. What wondrous love is this. Strange love that God has. And I'm telling you, every single one of us longs for that, to think that there would be someone who would take a bullet for me, who would love me that much, who would just place that on me. We just think it's elusive. But it's not science fiction, y'all, it's real. You know, in the English language, we've just got one word, love, and we just kind of use it for everything. We're not very inventive language, English, really. Like, Love. I love sushi. I love chocolate. I love Christmas. I love my grandma. I love my Mini Cooper, my new car. I love Jesus. And some would even say, I love cats. <laughs> so you can tell that word is being stretched. Okay, and I, I just hope that we don't mean the same thing when we say, I love Jesus and I love cats, because I don't think we do. C.S. Lewis, who's known for the Chronicles of Narnia by a lot of people, was a brilliant writer. He wrote another book I commend to you. It's called The Four Loves. And in it, he just reminds us that in English, while we got the word love, there's actually lots of different kinds of love that other languages have other names for because they're different. And he goes through them. And, and, and for example, he talks to us about affection love. And affection love is, is, is the, in the Greek, it's, it's sorge. And it just means, I, I like you in the words of Ben Rector. It's the simplest kind of entry-level 
love where it's just considerate fondness and affection for one another. Where you're, just, you're around each other and you enjoy each other's company. It's affection love. And then there's a deeper kind of love you can call friendship love. Philia, like brotherly love. And, and, and it means I love you like a brother. There's a close bond. There's something there that you share. It's special. You kind of have you and this person against the world a little bit. And then there's, it kind of forges a bond. And then there's a, another kind of love that you could call romantic or sensual love. Eros. You recognize that word. And it just kind of means I desire you. I want you. And in that it's not exactly exactly the same as sexual love or, or lust or anything. It's just, it's where you really just desire to focus on another person and their heart and who they are and you just want them. And the pinnacle of the loves, Lewis reminds us, the sort of culminating highest, most beautiful and rare kind of love is, is this God-like divine love that's unconditional. It's called agape love. Try saying that, agape. Agape love is God love and it's the thing that we're hungry for and it's so strange and so rare that says I am committed to you no matter what it's not a sort of if you scratch my back I'll scratch yours and we have an agreement here no it says I choose I'm committed I make a commitment to put you to place love and affection on you even though you don't do anything to deserve it I just choose to it's called grace that's what it is and it, and, and it comes from God and when we see it we, we don't know what to do with it because that's not the way it works in this dimension in this reality it's like no I don't know what to do I, I got to pay someone back a lot of you remember uh, back at Easter we introduced you to our friend Ringo it's not his real name we call him Ringo because he looks like Ringo Starr but he he um, he was a translator uh, from Afghanistan for the U.S. forces there and some of our mountain guys one of our mountain guys Philip was over there serving they became friends and when Philip came back, he heard that they were threatening his life over there uh, and because of his friendliness with the U.S. troops. And he had to flee the country. And he landed here in the States. And a bunch of mountain people have just unleashed love on him and just come around him and just showered him and helped him. And, you know, just in the name of Jesus, just showing up to help him however they can. And it's become a friendship. And so last, last week, the mountain riders got in on the act and some of the military group here at Mountain. And they just threw a big old Christmas party and invited Ringo and his family. And they just showered this kid with gifts and presents and new coats and all this stuff. And, and, and some of these pictures are fun to see. And it's amazing. And they're overwhelmed. They keep saying things, though, like, thank you, thank you, thank you. He pulled me aside. He says, I, I'm going to pay you back for all this. I'm going to compensate you for this. We're so grateful, but we'll, we'll make it all right someday. And I'm like, Ringo, you don't get it, man. It's agape love. And I, I understand how he feels. Because I think we're kind of the same way. We sing songs about amazing grace, but we're always trying to work our way and earn our way and keep our place in the world. But you can't repay and compensate for agape love. You just have to learn to accept it. You just have to learn to accept it. And this is the kind of love that the world is hungry for. It's the kind of love, it's why marriages are in the sad state they're in in our country because we don't have enough agape love. It's why kids are growing up in dysfunctional homes because parents are so consumed with themselves they can't give agape love to their kids and why brothers and sisters don't relate well and why workplaces are dysfunctional, why the world doesn't operate the way because we have, a, we have a scarcity of agape love but all of us know deep down there would be nothing I would long for more than to know that someone would make a commitment to me and love me in such a way that nothing could change it. And I hope you find a little taste of it here and there with your pet or your husband or wife or your friend or your neighbor or something. But it's all just scratching at the surface of what we're looking for. What we're looking for is Messiah. And joy to the world, the Lord has come. And he has opened 
a portal of love that the world doesn't know anything about. And our job is to receive it because it will change who you are in a graceless world that's cruel and harsh and ugly, dog eat dog. This strange love will change who you are. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't teach a lot about love. He just showed it. And he did tell some stories. And I want to tell you one of the stories that Jesus told. Updated a little bit through the lens with some help from Phil Yancey. A young girl shows up, uh, grows up on a cherry orchard outside of Traverse City, Michigan. And she sees her parents as sort of old-fashioned and out of it. She can't believe how they overreact to everything, like her nose ring and her short skirts and her friends. So they ground her, and she just seethes with anger. Her dad knocks on the door after an argument. She won't open. She just yells, I hate you! And she puts into motion that night a plan that she has dreamt up a hundred times in her mind. She runs away. She's only really been to Detroit a couple of times for field trips and ball games, but she knows from the newspaper with all the gangs and violence and danger there that it's the last place her parents would want to go or think of looking for her. And off she goes. It's her second day there. She meets this man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, puts her up in a nice place to stay, gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt. She's like, I was right all along. My parents were keeping me from all the good life and all the fun. And the good life continues for like a month, two months, a year. And the man in the big car, she calls boss, and he teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She's living in this nice apartment, orders room service whenever she wants. She hardly ever thinks about her folks back home anymore. And when she does, it's just like she can't believe how small-minded and boring and provincial they were. She can barely believe she grew up there. She has this brief scare when she sees a poster of herself with her picture and a message, have you seen this child? But she's got blonde hair now and with all the makeup and the tattoos and the piercings and such, no one really mistake her for a child, let alone the girl on the picture. And her friends are mostly runaways. They're not going to they're not going to tell. But after about a year, she begins to feel not so well and begins to look more pasty and thin, and the signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how quickly her boss turns mean. He says, I can't afford to take any chances these days. He tosses her out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but it doesn't pay very much, and it all goes to support her habit and so as winter blows in she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside a big office building you can't really call it sleep though she's always got one eye open you can't let your guard down you know you get these dark bands growing around her eyes and cough is worsening and she's lying there one night on the sidewalk suddenly everything about her life looks different to her she no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels more like a little girl who's lost and alone and scared in a big city. And she begins to whimper. She's got no money. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs up tight underneath the newspapers. And in that moment, she's jolted with this vivid image that just floods into her mind. And she can see herself in the month of May back in Traverse City. 
with a thousand cherry blossoms all blooming at the same time and her dog, that golden retriever running between the rows chasing a tennis ball. She's laughing and in that moment, she says, oh God, why did I ever leave? She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that what she wants more than anything is to just go home. She borrows a phone and calls home three times. Nothing, no answer. She goes straight through to voicemail. She doesn't leave a message. But she calls back again, and this time she leaves a message. Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm going to catch a bus tomorrow. It'll be in Traverse City about midnight. If you're not there, well... I guess I'll just go on to Canada. The bus trip is seven hours long from Detroit to Traverse City. She has a lot of time to think and to realize how dumb her plan was. She hadn't even talked to them. Maybe they're not home. Maybe they never got the message. Maybe they hate her. Maybe they've considered her dead for so long there is no home for her. Still, she rehearses a speech that she'll have ready for her dad. Dad, I am so sorry. It's not your fault. It's all on me. I hope you can find it in you to forgive me. And she works it, and her, just her chest tightens every time she tries to say it. That bus rolls along, and darkness sets in, and she sees a few deer in the ditch, and eventually signs that have mileage to Traverse City. Chest tightening some more. Until finally the bus rolls into the station, the squeaky Brakes hissing, and the driver announces on the microphone, 15 minutes, it's all we got, folks, it's all we got here in Traverse City. She's got 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in her little compact mirror and pats her hair down and gets the lipstick off her teeth, tries to rub off some of the cigarette stains. She gets off that bus, heading into that terminal, has no idea what to expect. She's played out a lot of different scenarios in her mind, but nothing prepared her for what she sees next. Because there in that concrete block wall, plastic chair filled bus terminal at midnight in Traverse City are about 40 of her brothers and sisters and cousins and mom and dad and uncles and aunts and even her great grandmother there with crazy party hats, blowing noisemakers with a homemade banner on the wall that says welcome home and they're cheering and they move toward her and she's dumbfounded and then her dad steps out of that group and she's got her eyes just burning with tears and she tries to find the words and she starts saying dad I am so sorry I know and he just says shh, 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 shh. And he puts his hand gently on her lip says, honey, we don't have time for that right now. We've got a big old party planned back at the house. Lots of food and everybody wants to see you. We got to go. And then she throws herself into his chest and he puts his loving arms around her and she feels the first wholesome embrace she has felt since she left home. Why did Jesus tell that story? I suppose it was because he wanted us to know something about what God is like. And he wanted to let us know that that thing that we all long for, 
Like we all long, is that true? Is that another reality? Does that ever happen? Because we all need what she found. And Jesus wants to say it's real. And he came to prove it. And he died to prove it. And he rose again to prove it. And it's for you. And if we can get past the strangeness, like all of our own, like, well, I hope she finally straightened up. I hope she got off the habit. I hope she paid her brother back for covering her chores while she's gone. That's how we think. It's how we are. And I get it. That's why they call it amazing grace. If we can get past that, you can see how amazing it is that Jesus offers that love to everybody. He did it right up until the second he died. Hanging there on the cross. Two thieves. Last guy gets under the wire. Last second. Hey, Jesus, can you remember me when you come in your kingdom? And Jesus says, done. The guy's never going to go to a Bible study. He's never going to go to church. He's never going to do anything good in his life. And Jesus says, there's enough grace for you because the strange love of God is not about you being good. It's about you crying for help. That's what it's about. God is love, and it baffles us, and, and we're, so, we're so used to this world, we don't remember the upside-down world of God's strange love, because we think we've got to pay for our sin, we've got we to figure out what, what's going to happen, what, God says, you're right, someone's got to pay for it, but I'm covering the tab, and he sends Jesus to the, Christ, to the cross, God himself paid the price, that's strange love, and the important thing for you and me to do is to receive it, and if you can receive it, like really receive it, like live as a person who believes you are loved like that, I'm telling you, it changes you. And we claw and scratch less to get through life proving and justifying and earning and achieving, and we can finally just live out of that identity of someone who's loved. And then we're able to love God and other people completely differently, but not until you receive it. Brennan Manning refers to, in, in the Gospel of John, where the writer says, he refers to himself as the, the one Jesus loved. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yes, John, what's your fundamental identity, John? He's not going to say, well, I wrote the fourth Gospel. I had three kids. I was a fisherman. He's going to say, you know what? I'm the one Jesus loved. That's his fundamental identity. And I wonder... What would it mean for you if you could learn to say the same thing? Where everything about you that we hold so dear and important, our job and our house and our families and our accomplishments, would melt away beneath the primary thing about you that matters the most and which we're hungry for the most, and that is that you are the one Jesus loves with agape love. What if? Imagine how your life would change if you could live out of that. I think we ought to do something right now. I'm going to put those words on the screen. I am the one that Jesus loves. And I want to invite you to, to say those words and to own those words and to believe those words like you've never believed them before. That the God who broke into this world through Jesus came for one reason, to love, and to love you with agape love. Will you say those words now and live into it this week? Let's say it together. Ready? One, two, three. I am the one Jesus loves. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for loving us like this. 
It's so strange. Thank you for your loving grace. That means there's nothing we can do to make you love us more. And thank you that there's nothing we can do to make you love us less. Even when we deserve the opposite, you love us not because of what we've done, but because of who you are. Help us to receive.